Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're talking about Hamlet. I have with me Dominic Dromgoul, the former artistic director of the Globe Theatre, whose new book, Hamlet Globe to Globe, describes the quite bizarre attempt to take our greatest playwright's greatest play to every country on earth. Dominic, welcome. Hello. Now, to start with, I'd say this idea sounds like the sort of thing you'd come up with when you were a bit pissed. How did you come up with the idea? Might have been. Might have been. <laughs> we were at the end of a big planning session, and we used to plan quite merrily. And we used to go away. I have to um, immediately say before any Colonel Bufton Tuftons get upset that we were not subsidised and we take no money from the government and we take no money from... Yeah, I was surprised to... Not surprised a penny to from the government, actually. not a penny from sponsors. We completely pay our own way. And what that gives us is a, a licence to reward ourselves for our considerable labours and enjoy ourselves. So we used to uh, really enjoy our planning sessions and this particular one, oh the, oh, the, oh, the shame, was in Scots of Mayfair and then we went to the Claridges and we drank a lot in Claridges. And at the end of the night... We were um, very happy, and at the beginning of that year, we'd done a glorious thing. This was 2012, and we'd invited 37 companies from all across the world, 37 different countries, to come to the Globe and to present Shakespeare in their own language. And it had been such a joyous celebration of Shakespeare and connection and internationalism that we wanted another idea that was its equivalent in sort of scope and scale. And so it just popped into the head. I just said why don't we take Hamlet to every country in the world? Because it's essentially a stupid idea. It's easy for other people to latch on to it, and it's easy for other people to start riffing on it and elaborating on it, and to get excited by it. We found that in the course of my time at the Globe, is that simple, stupid ideas really have legs. They sort of travel. Big, complicated, difficult, knotty ideas don't tend to sort of get out of the room where they first came up. And so, you know, we took the essential simplicity of it out to the world and we got a great response from many of the friends that we'd made by inviting Shakespeare companies to us. We had a sort of network of people we could communicate with everywhere. Except the French, you said. So there's this <laughs> funny thing in your introduction where you say, you know, everybody played ball with this idea except the French. And except you French. don't elaborate on French. Everyone, everyone loves Shakespeare, not the French. There's a funny history to that. That dates from Shakespeare. In the, you know, Shakespeare travelled immediately and everywhere. It wasn't, it's not recent Shakespeare going abroad. It was um, very much the story when he was writing. There was a big network of English plays moving around northern Europe, Belgium, Holland, Germany, through to the Baltics and uh, around a lot of the countries of the sort of Hanseatic League, but not France. Even then, 400 years ago... They're still pissed off about Henry V. (laughs) They're still pissed off. They're still upset about that. Partly they've got their own great French tradition, partly there was, you know, a horrendous state of tension between France and England then. Partly they're just jealous. <laughs> Among, you say yourself, your frequently asked questions, I'm just going to have to ask it, why Hamlet in particular? I mean, it's a great play, but it's very long and it's quite a difficult play. It's a great play, as long as it's difficult. Several things. One is that it's protein and it's various, and so... You know, we knew we were going to a lot of very, very different historical moments and a lot of very difficult, different political and social moments. And so you wanted a play that had many different faces. And, you know, Hamlet can be provoking and it can upset people or it can challenge people or it can console or it can inspire. So you wanted something that had a variety of moods that it could show to the world. You wanted something beautiful 
you wanted something iconic that people could latch on to, and there are various moments within Hamlet that everyone knows, a young man holding a skull, a young man with a sword, a poise over a man who's praying. All of those images, could people could immediately relate to them. But most importantly, is Hamlet is, you know, eternally unknowable. There are a series of plays, The Tempest, The Dream, Love's Labours, Bizarrely, uh, Hamlet, that constantly defy understanding and defy uh, wrapping them up into a little package and tying them up and putting a ribbon on top. You can't ever get a full grasp of Hamlet. You can't reduce it to anything. I was interested in you saying that if you're going to be touring for two years, you don't want a play that's going to be sort of exhaustible. Exactly, exactly. I I think if you... Because the other big thought was Romeo and Juliet, which everyone knows and is iconic in the same way, but the problem with Romeo and Juliet is the company would work it out. And they'd work it out in about four or five months. They'd have sort of got a grip on it. And that's sort of fatal. Because then the company gets angry and bored and listless and restless. Because they haven't got anything to work on. They haven't got anything still to solve. Um, And if the company's not happy, the show's not going to be happy, the audience's not going to be happy. So it was very important that there was something that was always running ahead of us, which Hamlet does rather magnificently. And you yourself have got a long relationship with Hamlet. I mean, the book's got a sort of element of memoir in it as well. And a little bit. I mean, you talk about how you sort of didn't get it when you were a teenager. And I still don't think I'm completely on top of it. It's sort of, uh, you know, it, it comes at you in different ways as you grow up and as you change. You bring different stuff to it and it brings different stuff back to you. I think when I was younger, it sort of solves problems for you at a certain age, 18, 19, 20, when you're furious at the world and you're worried and you're concerned and you can sort of transpose onto Hamlet a sort of journey that you're going through and then the place that he gets to at the end of as a special provenance in the fall of a sparrow sort of works pleasantly as a, oh, you know, I've worked through my problems and I've got to this place and I can now move on into the rest of my life. And it's only later, more recently really, that you sort of work out that there is no sweet, nice Christian resolution or sweet, nice Buddhist resolution at the end where he reaches a state of transcendence and he can accept all things. It's much more restless and troubled and clumsy and human than that. To talk for a moment about the sort of practical side of it, I'm very interested in how you cast it. You talked about not so much forming a company as forming a kind of squad. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to be on the road for two years, how did you do that? I mean, you had people doubling constantly in different mm. roles. Can you talk a bit about the casting process? You had. We decided to go with a squad rather than a team because we knew that, A, we wanted to sort of keep it fresh, and B, we wanted to... Um, you know, have cover in case people got ill or fell out or went mad or came home or whatever. So we knew knew that we needed a system cover within. So we could do the show with eight people. We had 12 people, but there was no favouritism or priorities in that. So there wasn't a first Hamlet or a second Hamlet. There were two Hamlets. Then on the course of the the tour, it became three and then four briefly because other people learned the role. We had three or four three Ophelias, we had three Poloniuses, so you could constantly shift it and change it. And that started as a sort of solution of a problem, and it became rather a thrill, actually, because it meant that the play was permanently sort of fresh and new. Like you said, you had, only had the same cast. Twice in the first Twice year. Twice in the first, whole first yeah. year. Which was sort of a mixture of keeping it fresh and, oh, my God, <laughs> when are we going to settle this thing down? 
But it was but casting was partly about getting good actors and adaptable actors and people who were able to tell stories in this, you know, very flexible and loose way. But it was also very much about the human aspect and casting people who we trusted could look after themselves and look after each other, most importantly. So you were casting individuals as sort of actor-astronauts, I called them, you know, that they were fit and capable and strong enough to be able to make it through, but also casting people very much that they balanced out one against the other and that they would look after each other, and they were remarkable. I mean, the most extraordinary, incredible thing about the whole tour, really, is that 16 people left, and two years later, the same 16 people came back. It's got the Antarctic expedition. Well, it was a bit. I mean, there was a couple of little moments where people got ill, they suffered bereavement, small sort of blips along the way when they had to drop out for a week or two, but by and large, they were all there consistently throughout, and they were amazing. And were you drop, You were dropping in and out of the tour, I mean, you yeah. say... You would. I did about 25 countries. The most extraordinary thing about them was that they were sort of geniuses of space, in that, you know, especially over two years when you are literally living in each other's pockets, they were brilliant at not being too close and too clingy and too needy and wanting to be with each other too much and not being too far away and too aloof and too isolated. And they were extraordinary as a group for knowing just how to operate together as a unit without breaking this sort of trust and this loyalty amongst them. I've never seen anything like it. And how did the show play? As you say, it's universal, but presumably there are some parts of the world which receive aspects of it in a certain way. I mean, there's a sort of Christian theme in it, which I only really understood when I saw Simon Russell Beale's production Mm. 15 years ago or whatever it was where you suddenly crisis a deeply Christian play in certain Mm. ways Mm. and the fear of damnation goes through I mean did the religions of the host countries the languages of the host countries I mean where how did the reception vary the responses varied extraordinarily according to where we were and who we were in front of in that you know at one moment we were in the United Nations in the ECOSOC chamber playing to 200 ambassadors all arrayed uh, in front of us and 400 public at the back and that's one thing. And then you're in a um, in Somaliland, which hasn't received any sort of cultural visit from the West for since its creation as a country 23 years ago. And you're playing surrounded on your perimeter, surrounded by people with machine guns. And you're playing in a, a hotel ballroom to 600 very excited people who just you know this is the first time they've ever encountered a play of this sort in their own country. And the distinctions are extraordinary and very visceral and very disorienting in some ways. And were you sometimes playing to people who didn't understand the language at all? Yeah, a lot. A lot. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we had some subtitles and we put out some synopses and occasionally we got people to stand up and tell the story in their own language beforehand. But we were moving at far too much speed to sort of set up a sort of comprehensive subtitle thing. And I, but I didn't really want to because... When I see Shakespeare in another language, or when I see any theatre in another language, Lope de Vega in Spanish, or Goethe in German, or Racine in French, you want to listen to the language. And I'm no linguist, but I love listening to a different language and seeing how it affects me and how particular dynamics of that noise, you know, ally with the story and the relationships and the bodies. And so we very much wanted to do that with ours and not have people constantly cross-referring their eye to a fast-moving sort of screen on the right or on the left or above. 
But I think you start to understand a really sort of simple, visceral, gestural political language that sits at the heart of it in part, in that if you have a play where a king stands up at the very beginning and makes a speech of everything's fine, isn't everything great, and then you have a young man standing in front of him or off to one side who is clearly very, very angry and who's clearly feeling utter contempt for the king who's saying everything's fine, everything's great... When you see that in a refugee camp full of people who are just out of Syria and you see their immediate passionate attention and anger that seizes their bodies at the sight of any figure of authority, you start to see the sort of architecture of the play in a different way from what I had before. You know, we treat it as a piece of literature and as a piece of poetry and as a great sort of philosophical tract. But actually others see a, a sort of restlessness and an anger at the heart of it and a political bite that we don't usually get. And Did the process of touring change your understanding of the play? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's a much more listless play, much more revolutionary play. Revolutionary is probably too strong a word, but it speaks to people that want to create a new modern and want to create a new future, whatever that might be. And obviously that's vastly different in Taiwan to what it is in Ecuador to what it is in Ukraine. But we had the great privilege of being there on the night before the recent elections in the Ukraine, and suddenly everybody wanted to turn up, and so Klitschko turned up, and then eventually Poroshenko turned up on the night before he was elected president. And we were in this thrilling chamber where the play didn't go down great, because everyone was too overexcited to watch it but we were there with them at a moment when their history was unfolding in front of them and it was a real honour and a real delight to be there and you suddenly see that that's at the heart of the play is that moment when you know you've got a representative of uh, the whole community and a young prince who is saying this is all wrong and we need to find a new ethic and we need to find a new way of behaving and we need to sort of change our ideas about who we are. That really translates everywhere. Is there a, a sort of, for you, other than that, a most memorable performance? Maybe that was it, but, I mean, there's obviously the one in Mexico where everybody had had some dodgy chicken and mm. <laughs> you had about three mm. actors on stage at any mm. given time and buckets really? at the wings. But They're all memorable. In, I mean, they're all memorable in completely different ways. There were performances in South America in these glorious old Spanish 19th century opera houses, which are some of the most beautiful theatres I've ever seen, particularly the one in Lima in Peru, which were just about the play hitting its stride and being clear and being concrete and being confident. That was one thing. And then there were moments when you felt its importance to that particular group of people and the, the fact that they were attaching meaning to it. In Cambodia especially, which was in some ways a disastrous performance because... The acoustics were terrible and uh, there was an army of people doing Tai Chi outside on one side. There were bats flying around the auditorium. It was sweltering with heat and then there was a monsoon. So you get all of that impossibility. But for some of the kids who were there, the students, you know, the meaning that they were attaching to it, whatever that may be, you know, it's, you can't really control what meanings people take away from it. But you could see that it mattered to them in a way that... Uh, you know, it's very treasurable. One of the things I've that's interesting in the book, you're quite sort of fierce about the sort of over-interpretation and the idea that, you know, you come with a whole lot of theoretical baggage to the play. 
Mm. You know, I mean, there's a there's a whole thing where you're saying, you know, strip it down for maximum clarity, mm. so to speak. I mean, did you do you think you managed to achieve that to get it down to just being the words themselves and yeah, uh, less yeah. acting? Yeah, by um, sort of willful modesty, really. I mean, as I say, the best way to avoid misconceiving of the play is having no conception at all, which is effectively, you know, we didn't have any conception and we didn't strive for any conception. It was just as simple as you could make it. I mean, there's no right or wrong here. There can be high-concept Shakespeare, which is glorious and thrilling and illuminating and throws light on certain corners of the play. And then there can be no-concept Shakespeare, which is rubbish. So there's no... This is the only way you can do Shakespeare prescription. But um, that was what we were aiming at. And I think it's because, especially with a lot of internationalism, internationalism and theatre becomes about directors talking to directors, talking to critics, talking to theatre makers, and it's a sort of international language of mannerisms, of, oh, let's use frosted glass screens in this way, and then now we're all using frosted glass screens, and oh, let's come up with this lighting trick, and now we're all using this lighting trick. And you just think that's not really internationalism. I mean, internationalism at its best is about people meeting people and stories sort of being given by one group of people to another group of people that create some dynamic between them. And do you think on the road is, is sort of where Shakespeare ought to be? I mean, you know, there's a sort of institutionalisation that goes yeah. on, you know, there's yeah. the RSC and there's the, you know, there's even the Globe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think everyone forgets that our theatre tradition was touring before it was theatres. We had about three or four hundred years of touring, and that was all theatre was. It was on the move, guild halls, cathedrals, pubs, market squares, on a booth stage, private homes. That that was our theatre. There's a ramshackle, vagabond movement all across the landscape. And it was only in the 1570s, 1560s, late 1560s, early 1570s, that people started building edifices to contain theatre. And that um, touring DNA was written into the company of actors that Shakespeare joined, and very much into his understanding of what theatre is supposed to be. I mean, obviously in Hamlet, you get the arrival of the players and the excitement at their appearance, and Hamlet is a connoisseur in them. And, you know, it's become more and more clear that that wasn't only national, that was international as well during Shakespeare's time, that there were all of these English actors at work abroad. You know, it's part of the tradition of, you know, how we do things. It's, it's fun, and it does loosen things up, is that the moment you've got a stage door and you can shut the audience out and you can create a hieratic distance between the performer and the audience, you sort of lose something. Whereas if you all are in the same field, uh, making it happen together, there's a sort of commonality about that, which is, I think, at the heart of our, what our theatre is. Thank you. Well put. Um, I suppose the last question I should just ask is, you know, Twitter poll, to be or not to be? <laughs> <laughs> to be as much as possible. Dominic Drongel, thank you very much. And in this week's book section in the print magazine, we lead off with Milos Stankovic, the decorated Bosnian war veteran, considering two new books on war and the art of war. Then Ben Markovitz looks at Walt Whitman's Guide to Manliness. Walt Whitman, the great American poet, had, it turns out, an alter ego little known until now as a newspaper lifestyle guru. Kieran Pym delves into Will Ashen's book Strange Labyrinth, which is all about Epping Forest and the history and mythology thereof. We have Rose George 
reviewing Xiaolu Guo's memoir of a hard-scrabble childhood in rural China. Nigel Jones looks at martyrdom in the post-Reformation England. And in fiction, we review new work by Ed Docks, Jamie Attenberg, and the masterful Leonardo Padura.